Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast Supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give and there's no regular commitment. Just hit the link in the show description to support now. Hi, hello. I'm Carl Christopher and welcome to For the Love of Hip Hop. This is the show where we invite guests to speak to us about what made them fall in love with hip hop. In the show, guests will give us their insights into the key records, places, spaces, people and objects that shaped and influenced the taste in hip-hop culture. In the first season, I'll interview the first generation of hip-hop heads, those who directly experienced the hip-hop genre storming and forming its way into the cultural landscape. Now, the most prominent music genre across the globe, hip-hop is here to stay, and we, you, love it. So I'd made this, as the rap champion, I, I put together a few bars and I recorded a little demo. And, you know, my boy was like, yo, I'll give it to my guy. He'll play it on the radio. So this was big stuff. Like hearing me and my first little demo getting played on the radio was massive. My guest in this episode is the broadcaster, Just Call Me Teddy, formerly known as Big Ted. But he's retired that name now. Just Call Me Teddy is a hip-hop stalwart. He's been a broadcaster on Choice FM and Kiss 100. He's been one half of the Chubby Kids DJ partnership with Shorty Blitz. He's a touring DJ for Black Twang and The Late Tie. This man is a hip-hop everything. Just Call Me Teddy, welcome to For The Love Of Hip Hop. Thank you so much, sir. Thank you so much, and thank you for that introduction. Um, <laughs> wow. <laughs> when you put it all in a list like that, I sound quite special. Well, you know what? I am I am just happy and blessed to have been a contributor and been able to be a contributor to the culture for all these years. Like, it's been a massive joy and a massive journey, but just being able to contribute my little bit along the way has just been, you know, the best part of it all for me, to be honest with you. Just call me Teddy. The first question that we ask of all our guests is, before hip-hop, what was your musical taste? What was your musical foundation? What was your musical background? Before hip-hop? Um, wow, we're going back to just having a, a radio in the house and my dad's record collection and some of my mum's record collection, actually. So, you know, my parents were from Jamaica and they predominantly listened to reggae. My dad absolutely <clears throat> was always playing, you know, reggae in the house. John John Holt was uh, definitely a, a favourite in the family. Um, there was loads of other... Uh, it's, I'm trying to remember the names. It's, it's, it's difficult now, but there was a lot of Trojan records getting played. A lot, of, a lot of that label was in the house, and especially on a Sunday, you know, after church, there would be just the the front room in the block of flats in in Battersea, Southwest London, just listening to reggae music. You know, Bob Marley was definitely getting played. Um, Oh, there's, there's 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 others. Pluto was one. 
I'm sure people remember um, Celia Bone, a dad thing there. Like a whole heap of classic reggae songs was getting played in the house. And my mom, she was into some bits and pieces, some um, Dion Warwick, some Shirley Bassey, you know, a bit of the three degrees and whatever. And I had an older brother. Well, I had, I still have an older brother. He was playing, I guess, a bit of pop music and then whatever. I think like, you know, when jazz funk was sort of coming through in the in the late 70s, early 80s and bits and pieces, whether he was, I don't know, I'm not even sure where he was getting his music from, but I had no choice but to listen to what everyone else was playing because I had no no means of my own to, to get to listen to any music. So that's kind of what I grew up on, a mixture of reggae, uh, pop music and, you know, early sounds of whatever my brother was playing. I couldn't even put my hands on it absolutely but yeah lovers rock yeah that would that would really be it to be honest with you what's the first hip-hop record that truly captured your imagination now i don't mean the first hip-hop record that you heard i mean the one that made you raise an eyebrow the one that made you lean in the one that made you go this is interesting i want to know more that's a difficult one because like the rest of the planet, I heard Rapper's Delight way back in 1979. But I, I, I didn't have anything else to associate with that song. It was just, you know, some guys rapping over a familiar sort of groove that was chic, good times and whatever. So I knew the relationship between the two songs vaguely, but I was like nine years old, 10 years old. So it wasn't, it had an impact on me, but it didn't, it didn't take me away into the culture because there was no promotion of the wider culture that came or where that song came from. So I didn't know about all the other rappers that would have existed around the same time. I would have to say it'd be years later um, when my godmother at the time, she gave me, uh, for I can't remember which birthday it was, probably around my 12th or 13th birthday, she gave me a, a little boombox, like a beautiful little stereo Toshiba. I still have it. It doesn't work, but I still have my first ever, you know, boombox or ghetto blaster. I hate that <laughs> ghetto blaster name, but yeah, I had one of those. I used to tune along, put it on and tune in and just run the dial along, listening to different bits and pieces. And I think probably one of the earliest songs I can recall would be Hip Hop Bebop by Man Parish. right there was such a powerful song just instrumentally the groove the bounce the 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 air there was a lot of space in the record but it, it still had such an energy to it and I would say that's one of my earliest yeah probably my earliest one that I could put my finger on and say yeah obviously there was Planet Rock as well you know and Planet Rock took over the world at about the same time. But 
for me like the the something about the hip hop bebop it made me really want to move you know and i'd say yeah that i mean i have great memories of planet rock that was that was a massive one because uh i went down to notting hill carnival when it was still all in the streets all over west london we're talking you know early mid 80s and i remember being down there with my big cousin raymond and we were at coincidentally one of your one of your your, your previous guests davy j he was in a sound called mastermind and they were djing down there at at carnival and they played this record it was like under the flyover i don't know if yeah i mean people should remember the flyover days of carnival so this is like Acklam Road and like the whole flyover section down there. I think it's now a skate park or something. And if you can imagine, what would the crowd have been? 3,000, 4,000 people. They put this record on and everybody was jamming to this song, to Planet Rock. Like that's a massive visual memory I have of hearing that song. But on a more personal note, definitely, you know, Hip Hop Bebop don't stop like that record. To this day, you can put it on and I will just start body popping. As out of date as my moves might be, I will still try and do them to that song. We know hip-hop to be a participatory culture. It comes with its own elements. The DJing, MCing, graffiti, breakdancing, b-boying. What did you participate in? Were you that b-boy? You had to do what you could with what you had. You know, I was also learning the lyrics to certain songs and, you know, pretending to be some sort of rapper. And that skill sort of developed a little bit later on. But yeah, at the same time, I was doing, trying to do graffiti. You know, I'd seen, I'd seen the guys in, in Covent Garden that were doing the graffiti. And I was, you know, practicing my own little style of tagging and, getting my lettering together and trying to do my wild styles and all the rest of it you know I wanted to hip hop was a it was a participant culture it was never something that you could just take a look at and be like oh that's really cool I'll just stay back here and no it was a participant culture you had to as James Brown said you gotta get up get into it and get involved it was not just for observers everybody had an opportunity to do something within it and you wanted to do something in it you know you saw somebody do some moves you're like i want to be able to dance like that you hear the sounds i want to be able to scratch like that you see the artwork i want to be able to create that kind of imagery you know and for the rappers you know i want to be able to put words together like that it was so it was so incredible and such a desire for me and everybody else i was around to be a participant in it in some way and yeah i you know my graffiti was pretty whack I won't lie um, but as a body popper and as an upcoming wannabe bedroom DJ I was decent even as a rapper you know I made it there eventually so yeah so as you become more immersed and exposed to hip hop culture what was that one record that made you claim hip hop as my own to say this culture is mine it's special to me I would say because of my interest my growing interest in the DJing aspect it was a start when I was starting to learn about what breaks were and what 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 the secrets of these records that these DJs were cutting up. Once I started to find that sort of thing out, then 
as well as hearing you know all of the actual produced records on the radio i was looking for the original samples and bits and pieces well they weren't even samples back then they were just you know um break beats so i would say things like take me to the mardi gras by bob james was was a massive record because i just loved that opening drum break boom like that drum roll was just it was everything and so many other records dj records used it like i was the type of guy that i wanted to know what the sounds were that those djs were scratching with on those particular records so there's a ton of dj records out there probably one of my favorites is um one for the treble by davy dmx that came out on Tough City Records in about I think 1984 if I'm if I'm doing my maths correctly and that he was just cutting up some breaks but not too much just really short segments and sounds and stabs and bits and pieces and it was just amazing to hear it and there were so many other records around at the same time um, Itchy Band Scratch no not Itchy Band Scratch sorry Techno Scratch by Knights of the Turntables they had a record that was just insane full of scratching and bits and pieces and these weird samples and there was a uh, private lessons by um uh, crazy eddie and master oc and um oh, i was into dj records oh there was dj cutting by the new york city cut aka marley mall um i just loved dj records there was a uh, the Knights of the Turntables by the Dynamic Duo. There was like I I was getting so heavily into the records that you would you would do you you would scratch with, and you know I could reel off a whole list of breaks and and bits and pieces. But I would say Take Me to the Mardi Gras is just definitely one of my super all time favorite breaks from that 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 period. So broadly speaking, speaking in the general, are there any specific, particular producers or beat makers whose sound design stands out for you? I guess it would be once I really understood what it was about making beats and all the rest of it. I guess it would be Marley Marl, really, because he made so many of my favourite records going way back to the 80s. And then throughout the 80s into the 90s he had some incredible records and for you what made Marley Mars sound different from other producers there was a grit there was a grit I don't know if it's to do with the SP1200 or or something I mean the Run DMC sound was great it was, that was Larry Smith and Russell Simmons and you know Rick Rubin to a certain degree and who else was there uh, I'm trying to think there was still a lot of live instrumentation going on alongside the the the, the drum machine. Um, I guess there was the Man Parish and Mantronics also. But Marley Marl had a grit, a really, really hard edge to the way he made his beats. Stuff like the bridge and the beat biter and um, the Marley Marl scratch and uh, like... like Oh, there was another one 
Oh, so the the early cold chilling stuff. So the stuff he did with MC Shan, um, Cool G raps earlier stuff. Like there was just an edge that Marley Mar had when he when he put a beat together that was it was just phenomenal. You turn it up and you could really, really, really feel it. Um, since then, you know, obviously people that have been influenced by him are people like Pete Rock, you know, um, DJ Premier. Those kind of guys. I still I love the 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 smoothness of producers like Eric Sermon. I still think his 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 funk edge is untouchable. Pete Rock has such a soulful edge, deep bass lines and melodies and you know, very layered production. It starts at the beginning, but it doesn't stay the same. It just it just builds and builds and the layers and the the insight when you listen to an instrumental from Pete Rock and you take the lyrics away, you realize just how much has gone into a Pete Rock beat. And DJ Premier has a very street edge to it. You know, he can take samples that don't even make sense by themselves, but put them together and make them a groove. And I think that's one of his master techniques. Um, but then there's others, you know, like I like I like RZA. He's got just a wild edge. He just loops. Doesn't even sometimes loop it on time. It just has a real raw, mad sound to it. Then you've got the beat miners and their whole Black Moon and and bootcamp click type production. Like there, there was so many, so many different styles and sounds that I was really, really into. You know, I guess if I had to choose, it would it would be a very fine line between having my debut album produced by Pete Rock and Marley Marl with Eric Sermon on the remix <laughs> pre-bowl on the intro and the outro <laughs> okay so again I'm getting an impression that you're immersed you're more into the crate digging thing uh, you're possibly thinking about presenting are there any significant records or a place that shapes your understanding of hip hop and how hip hop could be presented there are so many parts to it because in the beginning when I was you know just just finding things out and and wanted to be around other people that were doing hip hop you know you had to go out and find it and experience it and I I got those experiences from being in Covent Garden and those helped to to shape my understanding and, and to for me to learn a certain standard because there was an understanding that you had to be at a certain level to even begin to earn any respect. And those were the standards and the levels that that I was I was taught to respect. That they you couldn't be below what you'd been shown there and still think that you should be out there saying that you do this and saying that you do that and calling yourself a rapper or a DJ or a graffiti artist or a b-boy or whatever and so those levels were set and those kind of stayed with me you know right the way through my whole experience of learning to DJ and record collecting and and rapping and all the rest of it like me getting onto the radio it was a it was a thing that I thought about wanting to do but I didn't know how to go about it and it, it sort of fell into my lap. You know, it, it really came across my path just at the right time. Um, I'd, I'd 
I, I used to roll with a crew called Black Gold. We were like three rappers and a DJ. And one of my friends in, in the group, um, my man Newborn, he had a friend who was a radio DJ. Well, for me, your rap career is long and long and forgotten. As my experience for you of you is as a club DJ, which is a banging club DJ, as as a broadcaster. Tell me more. He had a friend who was a DJ on a, I don't know if it was a pirate station, but it was definitely a a low budget independent station. And as the story goes, he had been offered the opportunity to be a DJ on a bigger station but I didn't I wasn't sure what the word was like I didn't I didn't know the ins and outs of the of the story but I remember I'd won a rap competition see there's <laughs> there are so many paths that are going to cross now with this story there was a well there still is a DJ competition by the DMC the uh, world championships and in the 80s at some point and right up to probably about 1990-91 they used to run a rap competition alongside it just mainly for the UK and I entered the rap competition in 1990 and I won it so thank you so at this point I had become the 1990 UK rap champion but I didn't really consider myself the rapping champion of the United Kingdom because it wasn't really representative of MCs across the country. It was a fairly local competition. So, you know, I'd, I'd beaten a few guys in London. So I didn't really, really take on board. I was a, I was the best in the United Kingdom. But um, it was still a title. And obviously I had my crew with me and we were making demo tapes and whatnot. And obviously, as I said, one of the crew knew a guy on the radio on the, on the independent station so I'd made this as the rap champion I, I put together a few bars and I recorded a little demo and you know my boy was like yo I'll give it to my guy he'll play it on the radio so this was big stuff like hearing me and my first little demo getting played on the radio was massive so I remember tuning in to uh, I think the station was called Dance FM and the DJ was DJ 279. So he, there you go. So he played my little demo on, on his show. And that was exciting. You know, that was just mind blowing that he would do that. And subsequently, as I said, he then had got an opportunity to, to do a demo for a bigger radio station. And the station at that time was choice fm so it came to pass that he was looking for a guest to put on his demo as an interviewee to send to choice for his you know for for his demo and he asked me to be the guest that he would interview so that was how i kind of made my connection with 279 i I became his guest on on his demo tape that went off to choice and i think i think their feeling was like he was not quite ready so he was sort of co-presenting with Steve Wren at the time. And the name of the show at that time was The Rap Attack. And I thought, oh, yeah, that, that's that's a that's a good look. So, you know, there's this guy, 279. He's with Steve Wren. They do a Friday night rap show. It was called The Rap Attack and whatnot. And then at some point, 279 took over the show. 
and it was just it was just great and I was still rapping and moving around and meeting different people and doing whatever whatever and somehow I got invited up to the station once 279 had taken over the show to be a guest and I was just in there and I think I did an interview or I did some rapping or whatever and the vibe was just really really good between me and 279 and whoever else was there oh sorry um, a guy called Baby K he was the original co-host Babe, shout out to Baby K I forget his new name he's got a lot of people have changed their names since back then and <clears throat> so I guess because I had the opportunity now to, to, to go up to the station I started to go there a bit more regularly and I think I started helping to answer the phones I wasn't speaking on the air at this point and then I think I did get the opportunity to speak on the air and I cracked a few jokes and it sort of really helped with the atmosphere that 279 was trying to create. And I I just morphed into becoming a co-presenter with him and Baby K. And then at some point, Baby K left the situation. So I became the main co-host with 279 alongside Cutmaster Swift doing the mixing. And that sort of became the thing. And I ended up there. And so that was probably around maybe 1992, something like that, 91, 92. And yeah, it just, that was really literally the beginning of my my whole journey on the radio. And, you know, shout out to 279. You know, he'd done his thing up at Choice and Capital Extra for years. And um, yeah, that that's, that's kind of the two stories in one. So what was the one record that changed your attitude towards rapping? The next record, it would still be a lot of DJ records, but I guess if I was to leave the DJ records alone, I would have to say a record that was massive for me was Eric B's President by Eric B and Rakim. I think that that record really, really changed the way I felt about rapping. So uh, that's 1986. So I say it was that record and others around the same time there was Ultramagnetics there was um, Boogie Down Productions there was other bits and pieces but that record significantly changed my attitude to rapping because Rakim was just so dope and so uh, mysterious and so so lyrical because the other track on that that 12 inch single is my melody and it's like seven minutes of just some of the most incredible rhyming and it's so slow and it's so laid back but it's just so amazing and that's another record I know absolutely word for word you know and that is what kind of helped elevate my rap style to the point where you know, it took me to be four years later, it took me to be in the so-called UK rap champion. Um, but that record, you know, for many people, it was a seminal record. Either song, whether it was Eric B for president or whether it was my melody, it's just a phenomenal record. Can you spit a few bars of that seminal verse? Oh, come on, man. I came in the door. I said it before. I never let the mic magnetize me no more because it's biting me and fighting me and writing me to rhyme. I can't hold it back. I'm looking for the line, taking off my coat, clearing my throat. The rhyme will be kicking until I hit my last note. Like, come on. 
That record right there. If can you remember the opening bars to check out my melody? Mm-mm-mm-mm-mm. I think he says check out the bass, turn up my melody, let knowledge be born. Something, something like that. During the bass, check out my melody. And da 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 da. I'm letting knowledge be known that my name's the R. Rakia, I am the light, the rest of it, I'm not on the list. Plus, what I'm saying, I devise like a scientist. What I'm telling you, man, I studied raw like I should have studied all the rest of the stuff I was learning in school. Like that first album paid in full, follow the leader, let the rhythm hit him. <sighs> if people don't know who my favorite MC is, then they obviously don't know me at all because it will be Mr. William griffin jr all day every day above all and every mc ever is going to be rakim so your rap career is really interesting are there any records that uh, we could find now we could search now that would you know tell us about your rap reputation oh i've i've, I've rapped on a, a a significant amount of records i can't remember them all but I've I've done a few guest verses here and there which people might be surprised to to know about. But my reputation initially was as a rapper. It was only once I kind of got on the radio that I got more known as a DJ because I was given the opportunity to play records as a result of being associated with Choice FM and that's when that sort of started to take off a lot more. As your rep was building as a club DJ etc, uh, you must have been like one of the go-to guys. So you must have been pretty up there when it came when it comes to being on mailing lists. Well, I should point out that I didn't really get on mailing lists so much in the early days, but my advantage was that I used to work in a record shop in Southwest London, a shop called Liberty Grooves in Tooting, which was kind of seminal because we shout out to my man Johnny F who who ran the store you know it was his whole concept I just became a manager there he used to get hold of records that didn't exist he used to get hold of promos limited editions strictly for promotional use only copies of records that everybody wanted but nobody could get hold of he would go to New York and come back with X amount of copies. So all sorts of albums, all sorts of singles, you know, I used to be able to get my hands on and then go out and DJ with them. And it wasn't always necessary for me to be, like in quite a lot of cases, we would have the records before even the record companies in the UK would have them because he was so hooked into knowing the right people in the right places out in the US. One of the big records that I would have to say that really does mark a point in time for me is uh, Protect Your Neck by the Wu-Tang Clan. Now, the reason I give it its full title, Protect Your Neck by the Wu-Tang Clan, because nobody says Wu-Tang Clan, they just say Wu or Wu-Tang. But this was also tied in with my first trip to the United States because Johnny, the record shop owner, took me out there on a record shopping trip and we went around and we bagged up all of these you know incredible promo records and the Diamond D album and 
you know this and that and all of these incredible things on vinyl and then we went shopping for some normal records and we went to downstairs records which was actually upstairs but that's whatever and we bought a bunch of copies of of this record the guy recommended to us he said yeah it's this new this new joint these these guys Wu-Tang Clan and we bought all the copies he had and we brought it back to the UK and we were the first first absolute first 100% first store to sell that record in the United Kingdom we brought the very first copies back into this country and we sold them and I obviously I kept one for myself which I still have and that was around about the time I really started to be putting myself out there as a hip hop DJ you know and obviously with the radio and being in a record shop you know my reputation was growing as a guy who had a certain set of records and wow he's on the radio as well and that was starting to work in my favour and my reputation hadn't even reached the record companies yet by that point you know so that was very very big and then subsequently you know the ball did get rolling and I did start to get on a few mailing lists and the reputation of being on choice was 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 helping a lot not not to the point where you know I was getting tons of records but just one or two people because even back then the record companies were still not very clued up about how popular hip hop was they you know as much as Naughty by Nature might have been popular or you know whichever other artists had Cypress Hill might have had a a big song they still the labels still weren't really really clued up about just how popular hip hop was you know they Snoop was a massive artist to us but to the record companies I don't think I don't think they grasped just how popular Snoop was becoming now I'd always considered Nas Snoop Dre particularly on the numbers they were selling to be like the rock stars the superstars of hip hop for you were they never promoted like that yeah well I mean that doggy style album being in the record shop we sold tons and tons and tons of it as an import record this was before it got a release in the UK we were selling that record by the truckload and people were paying I mean what were imports costing an import album that then maybe had been about 9.99 10.99 and we were selling it every copy that we got in we sold it out you know we were selling 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 I think maybe by the time Nas dropped his album in 94 because I think Snoop was 93 maybe by the time Nas dropped Illmatic they'd maybe gotten a clue and that album came out like almost immediately on a UK release around about the same time the American release came out but Biggie's album you know the Ready to Die album nah that was we sold truckloads of that on an import American release before the record companies caught up with that you know it's, it's, it's strange and maybe Sony was ahead of their time or maybe they just had a more a more um, efficient release schedule but there were so many other companies that had massive records and artists on their label that they just didn't recognise even though on the streets 
they were selling, 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 selling loads of records, you know, for all the independent record shops that were that were open at that time that were selling all of these albums. It wasn't just us, you know. In our square mile, there was our store. There were two other record stores on our street and then, you know, maybe half a mile up the road, round the corner, there was another record store and we were all selling the same set of records at similar levels, you know, which should tell you that the record companies over here, just they just weren't clued up about, about the popularity of hip-hop at that point. For the love of hip hop, stories from the vaults of the culture. So this is the Puffy question. Do you think we should all pay more respect to Sean Puffy Coombs for presenting hip hop in a way that it could be more attractive and gain attention in the mainstream? I think Puff. Sean, Papa Diddy Pop, Papa Diddy Coombs, Combs, the Puff Daddy, Puffy. Yeah, I think he deserves a lot of credit. An absolute avalanche of credit for what he did. Some of the stuff, not so much, you know, the shiny suit situation. He definitely made hip hop glossy and. I didn't have a problem with it necessarily being glossy because, you know, you can be in a nice environment and hear, you know, harder music and it, it there's nothing wrong with that. And the way you present it, even though it's a harder sound, you can still present it with style. And I think that's what he did because, you know, obviously with Biggie, with Craig Mack, with Black Rob, with G Depp, with Loon, with a lot of those artists you know they were very very hard edged and then what he did with the R&B with Faith and you know uh, what's their names uh, Total 112 he put out R&B that still had quite a hip hop edge to it and obviously all his work with Mary J Blige and you know it was great stuff it was absolutely great stuff that he did and it, it's it's such a period in time where a whole lot more people got into hip-hop as a result of the way he made it look. Because it didn't have to be, you know, Timberlands and hoodies and, and, you know, backpacks and guns and all the rest of it. It didn't have to be that. It could be the same hard stuff, but you just look a little bit fresher. You know, you can look more stylish. You can drink champagne. It doesn't have to be knocking back some hardcore liquor. You know, you, I mean, people might think, yeah, but that's just ridiculous. Hip hop didn't need to be characterized like that. But there was nothing wrong with it, essentially. You know, having a pool party and, you know, it was, I, I, I mean, it was not a life I was ever going to live. But I appreciated it. You know, and it also, I think it was quite instrumental in bringing a lot more women into, into hip hop because it was presented in a way that made it seem a little bit more friendly. You know, the environment seemed a bit more friendly. Oh, you know, I could dress up and come and be a part of this as opposed to, I don't want to have to dress like a dude or dress so hardcore or dress down. You could dress up and be a part of, of, of hip hop at that particular point. Cause you know, there was the Wu-Tang side 
and there was the the the, the puff and biggie side and it was cool you know and and I, I don't have any beef with Puffy necessarily I think just where you know he might have taken it a little bit too far with trying to put the locks you know Sheik and Jada and, and, and Styles P in, into shiny clothes I think that was just a little bit ridiculous because they didn't deserve that they were you know living off experience they were the streets they were some hard music and they didn't need to be softened up to that degree to get across you know I, I feel like that was probably a big mistake but in general, I think what Puff did was was great. I really do. Tra- tracks like the Benjamins, come on, you know, him being Hot. responsible for that, yeah, you know, and that 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 rocked across all clubs. That was a hip hop classic as well as in the R and B clubs. People love to hear that. So, you know, Puff did amazing things for the culture, for the music, for the mainstream, for the radio. It, you know, it opened up hip-hop to the radio especially over here you know because you weren't hearing any wu-tang clan on the on the on the day on the daytime shows but you would hear biggie and then biggie opened it up a little bit to to them playing some slightly more robust material you know and that's good now as your hip-hop career developed and you yourself became an influencer what hip-hop record influenced you as your career ascended since we're talking about the 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 effect the puff daddy effect i'm gonna go with um special delivery g dep like i think that for me is is one of the one of the really really good combinations of club record and street record when I hear the opening synth and then I hear the drum roll special delivery or glittery like I don't know man it just has an energy that just works for the club and works for the street now I guess around the same time you've got Rough Riders and you've got DMX and I guess you know maybe even the the beginnings of a Ja Rule career or you know um I think maybe like there was there was a lot of that sort of hitting the right note between the the streets and the clubs but whenever I hear special delivery I, I just I just love that song and the video you know with a monochrome black and white and the energy was just right throughout the whole song then there was the remix they put Keith Murray on there and Ghostface Killer and it just amazing you know people might want to think about you see and then there was the Rockefeller generation you know Jay-Z and them they were making as a, again great records with with that with that street and club element to it you know Jay-Z's first album second album third album fourth album like full of material you know that was made for the streets and the clubs but just just slightly ahead of all of those I would just put that G-Dep song that just has a perfect energy for me and I love to hear it and this is one of those records that for whatever reason when you get these sort of revisionist DJs that want to play records from the 90s and the noughties and they really think they're on top of things because they've downloaded 
you know, all of the hip hop hits from the 90s and the noughties and they play them in whatever order. But this is one record that always gets overlooked, you know, and it's only since I think, what's his name? Little Wayne sort of done a remake of it that it sort of come back into fashion again. But unfortunately, not of its own merit. You know, it's on the back of Little Wayne knowing what a dope record it was and reinterpreting it. But man, that record was strong. And that's disrespectful. A strong like XO mixed with XO. And that's a high capability. Hey, yes, I possess that ability. I spit it out. Special delivery. Ted, as a DJ and radio broadcaster, you would have experienced hip hop in many different places. So, what's the most significant and exciting place you have experienced hip hop? Yes, I've 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 been blessed enough to see hip hop in a few different places around the world. Not as many as I would have liked, and I guess now those opportunities are becoming much thinner. But historically, I, I would have to say, oh, no, see, there's quite a few. In the UK, traveling around my, 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 my fair land, one of my, one of my most exciting ones would have been, I guess, the first main stage performance that, that, that I was a part of and that would be with Black Twang we did a performance at Glastonbury and I'm trying to remember the year it might have been 1998 97, 98 and that was great so we're talking pre-Jay-Z here what was it like to be performing hip-hop at Glastonbury the big rock festival It's, it's, it's a really hazy memory of who else was there but I just remember my performance with Black Twang was, it was just great. It was three of us. I was on the turntables. There was Shawnee T on mic number two. And on mic number one was Tony Rotten himself. And we just did, we just did a great show. It was just looking out at this audience, knowing that you were at Glastonbury. And I think that was one of the earliest years of them having, you know, any kind of black music representation you know, and it was just so special. It was just so, 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 so special. And we we tore that for that thirty minutes that we were on stage. We tore that place apart to the point where <laughs> um, a young lady threw a pair of panties wow. towards the stage. And the craziest thing is, like black trend mania. Well, the panties landed on the needle of of one of the turntables and it jogged the record like it was such a perfect shot she threw it and it just went and hit the needle and yeah it was just hilarious it was just absolutely hilarious but it was just a it was just a a great 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 time i mean that was that was that was you know domestically internationally i did a festival with ty in in poland trying to think I, I think it was Warsaw we were in it was an open air festival and it was raining by the time we got on stage so the crowd had really really dispersed 
and we looked to each other and it was just like you know what we're here we have to go on so let's do it and I tell you I mean I may have described this before to, to, to people but the way I watched Ty pull all of these people in that were hiding away from the rain under trees or under umbrellas or going back inside the bar area or whatever and he just managed to just pull them all forward in the rain and we had an incredible incredible show it was it was beautiful to witness you know I think we must have had uh, I don't know maybe six or seven hundred people in front of the stage by the time we got even just about a quarter of a way through the show or a third of the way just because of the way Ty just pulled them in just did his thing and just drew them in towards the stage and then we just set it off and we just had a great show and that's just shown me just the power of hip-hop like it's forced to be able to just bring people together and make them enjoy themselves you know that's that's a great feeling for me as a performer is to be able to witness that as a club DJ it's a different thing it's slightly different because you know you're in an environment where people just want to hear a certain set of records but as performers when you actually have to reach out into people's energy and pull it forward and draw it towards you that is something amazing to watch and I've I've been blessed enough to be a part of a few performances like that for a few artists and you know I, I love it I absolutely love it wow it sounds like we need to see the late Thai in his element performing do you have footage is there someone we can go to see it is, is, is it on YouTube yes there is a clip there is a clip available online um, the, the footage is a bit rocky and I'm upset because I actually recorded the whole set on what I thought was a MP4 little machine but the file exists but I can't open it and I think I need to take it to an expert because I recorded the whole show but my file just it will not open I still have it somewhere and I, I you know I guess I need to find someone who can open it but there is footage of of that particular performance like a snippet maybe about eight or nine minutes of the performance is available online and you can just see you'll see the people jamming in the rain right in front of the stage and Ty doing his thing it's, it's, it's beautiful to watch is there any one object that is symbolic of your love and affinity for hip-hop well that is such a mean question that you've asked me because I can't pick just one object I I have to put these three in the same box if they can fit I would put the gold microphone that I won in 1990 as that UK rap champion because that moment was incredible for me the judges on that night of that competition were actually a tribe called Quest and Professor Griff and the last Asiatic disciples so that has such a significance for me and even one of Tribe Called Quest um, Jerobi came up to me after I'd finished my I think you had two minutes you were allowed two minutes to rap 
and I, I'd used whatever instrumental it was. I think it was um, actually a 45 King production, Top Gun. That that's what I rapped over. I rapped over the instrumental of Top Gun by Lord Ali Barsky, produced by the 45 King. Jerobi from a tribe called Quest came up to me, and he said, "Yo, your shit was deaf." <laughs> And I was like, wow. Now, bear in mind, Tribe in 1990 weren't the Tribe that they are now. Like, this was first album, probably even, you know, first couple of singles. I think they just had El Segundo and Pubic Enemy released. They they weren't, they weren't like as, you know, I don't think um, Instinctive Travels had been released quite yet. It was on the verge of. But, you know, to, to know that Q-Tip, Ali Shaheed, Fife and Jerobi sat there alongside Professor Griff and his crew sat there and they judge me the winner makes that gold microphone an absolute memento that I will never ever ever let go of ever and in addition just below them in the box would be my turntables and my my red Kangol hat my Bermuda my Bermuda what do they call it Bermuda Beach Casual Kangol hat bright red like LL Cool J used to wear and 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 my turntables like those three objects in a box that's 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 everything for the love of hip hop final thoughts is there any one moment that best summarizes your experience of falling in love with hip hop honestly my greatest 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 set of memories are based around being in Covent Garden in the early to mid 80s because that is just where I saw all of the elements in action at the same time there was a little corner of Covent Garden like I've been there recently and I can't even physically tell you where it was anymore it's it's the place has changed shape a few times and, you know, you've got an Apple store there now and you've got, you know, the transport museum and you've got this and that. So I can't even physically tell you where in Covent Garden it all took place in my mind. But being there and witnessing, you know, people like DJ Pogo, DJ Business, Cutmaster Swift, who you probably know as DJs, but were break dancers back then. Like this was when we were all multidisciplined and you did more than one thing. So those guys starting out as B-boys and seeing the graffiti and seeing the body poppers and, and you know, people kicking a few rhymes in the corner and just so many crews down there. Shout out to the Sidewinders and the, the Trailblazers and the Chrome Angels and, and Aussie's crew. And I... It was just amazing. Side, there was sidewalk as well. There was sidewalk crew. I think that was Richie Rich. Um, I, it's it's hard for me to to put into words how amazing it was for me to be witnessing all of this stuff, just seeing it all happen in front of me, and me kind of being a part of it but not being a part of it because I was like 14, 15 years old 16 I, I'm you know yeah that sort of teenage area age 
and seeing all of this stuff happening and my eyes were just so wide and I was just on the outskirts but I was in there you know and a couple of people knew who I was but I had no reputation like my name was not anywhere near getting established for a few years yet but those days they're just absolutely amazing times there was an event called Freestyle 86 is it Freestyle 86 or Freestyle 85 one of the two and it was like a you know a hip hop jam as we used to call them and there was b-boys there there was graffiti there was DJs there was rappers and I just remember watching you know DJ Pogo cutting up these these breaks and these records that I I, I never knew the names of at that time I'd I didn't know what they were and I'd only heard them on tapes of DJs from America and I I honestly genuinely couldn't understand how him living over here had gotten hold of these records that I'd only heard on tapes from America like it was just mind-blowing and that that whole period of just being around Covent Garden just really really shaped my my whole understanding of hip-hop and it and it and it continues to because I think it's important for the roots and for the culture to be remembered and to be respected and to be incorporated into what's going on now and on so many levels it just isn't you know and just the standards that were set back then and the attitude and the the newness of everything and that desire to well not even a desire it was a a necessity to create your own thing you had to create it yourself because hip-hop wasn't anywhere else other than where it was being created you know it wasn't on the tv like that it wasn't on the radio like that it wasn't you know you couldn't just go online and go and find a whole bunch of people participating in something there was you had to make it to be able to enjoy it and be a part of it and just being there for those original foundation days i mean i'm sure it was happening elsewhere in the country you know shout out to nottingham i know they had an incredible hip-hop scene parallel to ours bristol you know they're legendary Manchester I'm sure had it going on Brighton I'm sure had it going on but I was from London so just seeing them being a part of it was just just the greatest time ever greatest hip hop memories for the love of hip hop for the love of hip hop that's it for now thank you for listening For rights reasons, the music is restricted on the podcast. If you wish to hear an extended version of this show, please head to Mixcloud, find the moniker for the love of hip-hop, and for a small subscription fee, you'll have access to content with more music and more stories. If you're happy to listen to the podcast version for free, cool, please do like, share, and review it all helps to gain recognition which helps to producing more content thank you bye for now